1: Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post match podcast with me your presenter Tim Stillman stepping in for Elliot Smith. Today we're giving Elliot a day off after presenting pretty much every single well not quite every single but about 95% of the World Cup daily podcasts and obviously with uh, the Arsenal coming back uh, very very soon we've decided to you know a bit like a bit like Elliot's won the World Cup. We've decided to give him a couple of days off to uh, to celebrate. Um, before he gets back to the real business of of Arsenal and the Premier League. And obviously we are going to talk about Arsenal and the Premier League and the game against Juventus um, on Saturday and some of the issues arising from that. But um, in, in something that I think is going to be really, really original that not many other podcasts have done, uh, specifically not many other Arsenal podcasts have done, we might just spend the first half talking about um the world cup final which was the second biggest game that happened this weekend um and maybe just take like a bigger kind of wider view of of some of the things that happened in this year's world cup which felt like a re- in one on one hand felt very very long but at the same time felt kind of short and a bit like a whirlwind but anyway before we get to any of that the two gentlemen who are going to help me to dissect all of that are Clive, who you can follow on Twitter, at Clive P-A-F-C. Good afternoon, Clive.
2: Good afternoon, Tim. Hello, hello. How are you?
1: Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. I'm always – I hesitated there because, like, i realised that, like, it's not the afternoon for Paul. It might not be the afternoon for people who are listening to this, but it's difficult to know what else um, to kind of say as a kind of informal, uh, merely mouth British greeting. And in that interest, <laughs> I'm going to speak to someone who isn't British uh, – Good morning, Paul. Who you can follow on Twitter at PoznanInMyPants. in my pants. Paul, how are you doing Woohoo. this morning?
3: I'm doing great, thanks. You're very. Um, you got that whole professional air about you. We we'll have to <laughs> knock that out surprised. of him Paul. let Let's <laughs> yeah. knock
2: that out of him. We can't have this crap. We got to knock yeah,
3: that, we'll that out of him, out him. real quick. <laughs> yeah, we'll give, tickle him under the arms. Like I've I've hosted a few of these, and like <laughs> they don't come out like this. So,
1: fair play to you. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so pleasantries out of the way. Uh, We're recording this on Monday afternoon and obviously on Sunday we had um, the undercard of the weekend, which actually strangely happened after um, the main event of Arsenal events at the Emirates of France versus Argentina in the World Cup final. I mean, wow, (laughs) quite frankly. (laughs) Um, Clive... I hope you won't mind me saying you're a man of advanced years. Um, yeah, all right, me. all right,
2: steady on. I thought we as, were mates. As I, think,
1: as I think we all are on this podcast to different degrees. No. Is this, and, well, and Jim, Wasn't
3: there some rumour of
1: you soiling yourself in a store somewhere in London or a restaurant? That, I, I mean... That was actually my daughter that did that um, okay. twice in a matter of minutes, which actually Argentina managed to do around about the 78th minute of this match, <laughs> um, which is, there you go. That's a really good segue right there. So Clive, in all your experience and the hundreds of world cups you've seen, <laughs> and obviously there is recent, there's going to be recency bias baked in here. And I'm very aware that the 2018 final did finish four two is this the best World Cup final you've ever seen? And what was your, just how did you experience the game, Um, I guess, emotionally as much as anything?
2: Yeah, easily the best World Cup final I've ever seen. And probably the best final I've ever seen because context is the event, right? And what it actually means for people and their lives because lives will change after this game. And we know this, right? So, um, easily the best game just because, well, for me anyway, and for many people, being a messy fan, you hope the story has a good ending. And I feel really good because you feel as though life has dealt a good hand, do you know what I mean? And sometimes good things don't always happen as you expect them to happen. I think many of us feel a little bit like, or many of us who have of that messy persuasion, shall we say, feel like, you know what? I'm glad that's happened. And I'm glad that life has worked out that way. And I've got a little bit of a... I feel better about people and better about things because good things have happened. And that's how I feel. I mean, watching it with my whole family who love their football but really love this game, you know, and were really, really engrossed and invested in this game, which tells me something about Messi himself that he has crossed over, hasn't he? And to cross over, and I don't mean to sound snobbish here, but to cross over and not speak English means that you must, you must do lots of good things in your craft, you know, the way you operate, the way you play. Um, and I think it's just wonderful. And um, so, yeah, my, an unbelievable game. I'm just probably saying something that many people felt just watching a game undulate like that. It's just, those are the things that don't leave you. And one last thing, Tim, you know, there are moments we all grow up with, World Cup moments that stick in our minds. Brazil 82 for me, massive moment. Gaza 90, massive moment. I feel I think about all the young kids today that've had that moment that is their world cup moment that they will never ever forget all out playing football today all trying to be somebody and Mbappe Messi I think the the game really did give something back today I'm, I'm buzzing for those young people in particular
1: Yeah the first two finals I saw were 1990 and 1994 which are probably two of the dullest finals that have ever happened <laughs> um Paul, uh, and, and I wanted to come on to the messy question, but I'm going to bake it into. I want to give you like a little bite um, at that question as well, Paul, about how you experienced the game, whether you felt like you had chien in the fight, <laughs> 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 watching this unfold um, for France, but also I, I, obviously I wanted to come to the question of Lionel Messi, and I, I I feel like I feel like this really exemplifies and illustrates how much our lives are online now. Because personally, I, I think Messi is probably the greatest footballer of all time. He's certainly the greatest footballer that I've ever seen. Um, I, you know, I don't necessarily feel emotionally attached to him, but I don't feel emotionally distant to him or anything like that. Like, I don't really care. I don't. I don't really watch Barcelona much. I don't really watch PSG much it's fine um, kind of thing. But I feel like a lot of people did want Argentina to win and it almost feels like people wanted them to win because it was like, I'm so bored of this argument. I just want him <laughs> to like kill this debate like as an internet thing. Um, but yeah, so first of all, your kind of your response to watching the game, whether you felt emotionally involved uh, from a French perspective. And I guess my other meteor question is, do you think Messi needed this for his legacy to be considered you know, the, the greatest footballer of all time? Uh, well, he shouldn't have
3: needed this for his legacy, but he did. Um, it's just how it works. It's not fair. Um, he's clearly one of the greatest, maybe the greatest. Um, but uh, especially with Ronaldo going around with a, a piece of paper he carries in his pocket that he shows to people of the stuff he's won, the individual awards he's received along the way. Um, Like, and this weird world in which like, we care about how we're seen in the world. I mean, that's what drives these guys on. It's not just the love of football. It is about status. And it is about those pesky questions you get asked for the rest of your life. Yeah. You you, sure you were the greatest, but you weren't the greatest because you didn't win. This is like a really annoying thing to hear for the rest of your life. And for like, it just puts it to bed. Right. For me, it's Maradona and it's messy. And like Maradona with me is like messy, but with emotion, it's like sex, drugs and rock and roll. I was emotionally invested in Maradona, like just absolutely fantastic. Edgier seat stuff. I love late stage messy because he's angry, gnarly, messy, 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 uh, mixes games up, gets stuck in. There's emotion there. There was this cold uh, fish of a brilliant player for so many years in the middle of his career. Young Messi was this tearaway that was just running all over the pitch, and that gave you that energy. Kind of mid-stage Messi was brilliant, but not just didn't kind of move me the way you expect a brilliant, brilliant football. When Maradona was at it, Jesus Christ, you just, you were hanging off the edge of your seat, whether you were, it was one of those times you hate, he was like McEnroe. Sometimes you hated him and you, he had to lose cause he was the bad boy. And sometimes he was just brilliant and sublime. And like Messi didn't do that to me for so many years, but this late stage Messi, this final, this, like all the things I dislike about Argentina and like about Argentina at the same time. Um, yeah, this, this final was fantastic. A final that kind of comes to this level for me in terms of of emotion. Um, you know, you you hadn't been born yet, Tim. Perhaps your parents hadn't been born. Uh, maybe they started flirting at this point, but I think it was uh, 1974, Germany, Holland uh like that I, was a,
1: three of my sisters were born by that
3: <laughs> <laughs> well that's something but you come into that game and like holland probably the best team in the world cruyff at his prime der Bomber, uh, Gert, uh gertie muller up front um and just like that grainy feel you had from football looking back at the tape in time was actually how TV actually looked at the time. It was grainy and it was exciting and it was thrilling. And there were, like there was drama and there was a penalty and yeah, it was great. But most finals don't quite build, live up to the the excitement of that final. They're more of a procession. You got your your Bagios, your Ronaldos not quite added in the final, the final, very tactical, very defensive. Like this was just, this was too much. Like, two goals up, it was dead and buried. Did I have un chien uh, dans le match? Um, perhaps I did. Maybe um, My wife's French. We had, But, like, I was actually kind of pulling for Argentina because we had a football bracket going through the tournament. She was on 132 points. I was on 128. I got the result right, i.e. 3-3 at full time. I got the first score and not... Not too tough. Uh, first team, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got, people will be excited to know I got 159 points and came 10,000th out of about, uh, I don't know, about 200, uh, probably over a million, I would guess, in the FIFA bracket. So, yes, I had a, a chien. I didn't bet against France. I bet for a draw. So, my wife is still talking to me, though she still kind of hates it. Seems a bit lawyerly of, uh, of me to have won without. Betting against France. There was lots of drama, lots of emotion. It was fantastic. So often as well, you maybe have a great 90 minutes and then it goes to extra time, and that's a bit of a procession. They're too tired, not much happens. They kind of they start playing for the penalties. These bastards went and scored two more goals. Like it's ah, oh, it was just ah oh, fantastic. Absolutely pulsing, uh thrilling. But, you know, just edge of the the seat stuff. I was exhausted. I was exhausted after 90 minutes.
1: Yeah, same. And I think the other thing this final had, and you alluded to it there, Paul, about like different finals, having different things. During this tournament, um, Adam Hurry wrote a really, really good piece on The Athletic that I really liked. And he talked about how like World Cups look the same now. Um, because you don't get he was talking about like when you look at footage of 1970 74 82 80 like they all look distinct from one another but his argument was like since maybe 2006 probably 2010 like television um kind of technology like there's only so much further it can be pushed and it all looks crystal clean um all of the stadiums are bought Uh, sorry, uh, uh, are built and they all look the same. It's very difficult to distinguish them, but what will distinguish this for years to come, I mean, there's something else we'll come on to later about the trophy lift, but this was billed as Messi and Mbappe Mm. as the final and that is exactly basically what it was and I think that's really going to distinguish this final, like the two best players in the world just going at it and both totally living up to it.
3: Yeah, because that's what so often happens with these finals. Either they're a bit of a procession, a bit one sided, a bit anticlimactic, and you say, ah, oh, the best game was in the semi finals or in the quarterfinals. Um, but the other thing you have is the star of the tournament not necessarily being the star in the finals. So your uh, Brazilian Ronaldo, your Bagios, your like. There's very few times that a guy is so good that he can turn it on in the biggest game ever. And here's Messi. And it took a little while for Mbappe to have his influence, but like utterly dominant. Uh, A hat-trick, okay, there was a couple of penalties in there. Um, But uh, a wonder goal, and Messi just pulling the strings, doing that thing where he walks around. Like It's still incredible that he just does that thing where he just walks around. So everybody ignores him. He doesn't do anything and then suddenly he does everything. It's, and, yeah. and like, a, yeah, to for both of them to have shown up so big in the final, absolutely fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I feel like, again, if you're thinking, and lots of people were thinking about the final in that respect, probably a lot of us thinking, oh, you've had one in Mbappe. You had one when you were 19. Like, Messi needs to have one now, because this is his last crack and and all of that. And And I just think, you know, from a, storyline perspective, it gave us so much as well as just being a bit of a crazy match but Clive, overall um, do you think, uh, you know you've talked about, we've talked about the messy angle here but do you think Argentina were the right winners for this tournament overall?
2: I think they were, um, you can see them building, I think there's more, t- there's more to it than just the best football team, I think sometimes you see, you even look at the fans and see which fans are the most invested and you got fifty thousand people traveling. I mean, that's just incredible. Because one game, Argentina, Mexico, both well supported. Huge game, lots of pressure. Messi dug Argentina out when they were crumbling. I think they were the best team. But I must say I have I was biased. I once England did their thing, <laughs> putting the ball into Rose you know, I immediately flipped over to Argentina because because of the player who I really admire, really. And I suppose you'd, if you take a step back about what the World Cup actually is, when you think about the obscene amount of money that's been spent to build the stadia, um, I think that whole thing to buy the PSG team, to have the Qatari run team, have the two players they've overpaid for playing each other in the final. There are so many things that force you to think about how you absorb the game. And when you were saying just then about every World Cup's the same, I actually think this World Cup is is different in some respects. Because what's happened to maybe even four years ago and definitely eight years ago, we absorb the game through different mediums and different medias. Many of the people now listen to various podcasts and they educate themselves not just on the game but on the political side around the game or around the tournament. I have to say the athletic coverage has been outstanding. He has educated me. Uh, Sometimes I wanted to applaud at some of the podcasts because I am interested in that side of the world. I don't know enough about it. So I get a chance to educate myself about different cultures in the Arab world and what football means to them, what life means to them, what work means to them, how they live, the poverty with which they live, the deaths that have occurred. It It just brought it all home. Alongside of the football, so this World Cup has been massively different for me because I didn't know that in Argentina '78, I didn't really understand the political situation there. I just didn't get it. All I saw was ticker tape. Do you know what I mean? And I loved it. And I saw, I saw Kempes. Great. You know, that's all I needed. You know, I just didn't get understand the, the things outside of the game. And I, I'm at a stage I in my life.
3: saw a lot of fouls in Argentina. 1978, yeah, a, a, a what, it, it was war on the pitch, absolute war.
2: Yeah, it's a different game, right? a different game, and, and that was the same for all games back then, but, well, most games, shall we say, a different game, very different, different laws. But I do think this World Cup has been different because it's, it's made me think about not just the football, but much more about how we live, how we work, how we operate, and how the political world outside of football really operates. And so I'm hoping, beyond hope, that now our eyes have been opened to some of this, that people don't forget some of the things they cared about a month ago, and they still think about those values that they were screaming about and think about them and don't just think about them while the World Cup is ongoing and then rush back Tiller to Tollington, he says in air quotes, and get back to the league football and not think about how people are feeling, how they're living, how they're working and how the political ramifications of FIFA expanding tournaments and all the things that I've been open to, I hope they stay open to because I think it's definitely worth discussing as we think forward.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd really echo that about the coverage as well. Um, you're right, the Athletic have done some great stuff, the Guardian have done some great stuff on this and I think quite well balanced as well because on one hand, I, I know I've like talked about this a little bit on Twitter, I'm no expert or anything like that, but like talked about it a little bit on Twitter and obviously had like loads of replies like, oh, you know, just being racist towards the Middle East and all of that. And I think on one hand, you should never, ever stop checking your own prejudice. Um, you should never stop doing that. And I've definitely learned during this tournament by listening to people, particularly who are on the ground yeah. and yeah. out there talking to people that, you know, okay, like, um, you know, let's not have a saviour complex here. Let's not do the kind of, we're the West, we're coming in to, like, you know, to to understand the different cultures. But at the same time, it's I think it's still... Like, you know, the stuff like migrant deaths and things like that and and the lack of LGBT acceptance and, you know, it's not good enough to say that that's culture. Yeah. You don't get to erase other people as part of your own culture. Like, obviously that just doesn't stand up to any kind of logic. Otherwise I could just come up to you and say, my culture says I get to punch you in the face. Like, of course it doesn't. Like, exactly. that's not really how and it works. Could, but You
2: could tell to yeah. you that some of those journalists were massively conflicted because there were things yeah. they were enjoying – and they're saying, should I be enjoying this? You know, yeah, they're yeah. walking around and there's no there's no fighting outside of stadiums. Yet two yep. weeks before they were saying, there's a beer ban. You know, so we are, it's so much conflictions. And I think it's been a massive educational journey for me. I know some people are much more worldly wise than me and that's fine. I, I'm just mm-hmm. a football bloke, but I've learned so much. I've learned so much and want to continue learning. So, World has done one thing for me. It's opened my eyes up to other parts of the world that I previously just completely ignored.
1: D- definitely, definitely. And and I think like, um, you know, I, I and I do and again there's that conflation because it was and is important that like the Arab world, the Middle East, whatever you want to refer to the region as it is and was important that they like get a world cup and and that we experience that culture and i think what the morocco team did in this world cup as well just did so so much um but at the same time it's like i mean obviously like look at look at 2010 south africa 2014 brazil fifth largest country in the world 2018 russia 2026 is like across the whole of north america it's so big like obviously holding it in a city was was probably not certainly from a kind of structural point of view like and there are reasons for that but that's you know not to dismiss the fact that in that region yes like there should be world cups and and things like that um I, i did have a segue there but paul you want to come in on that so i'm going to let you
3: well look it's never been clearer to all of us east west north or south on this planet that football has a huge sports washing problem and we've seen the chickens come home to roost and there's been a lot of pointing back to the fact that there wasn't the same fuss over russia but there should have been and we've all educated ourselves on that um i wasn't super happy about the uh, world cup being in russia but like nobody really cared at that time i said a couple of things but Like who cares? Uh, You look. You look at this evolution of sports washing over the years. Over what's going on in the Premier League, and the thing about sports washing is it has to work both ways. They want to come out there, spend that money, and say, "Look, everything's wonderful with us. We got. We're just like you. Everything's fine. Everything's great." Well more and more it has to be the case that it's a two-way street. You've got to put Newcastle under pressure. you got to put City under pressure. We should have been putting Chelsea under pressure with uh, Abramovich. Um, countries that put themselves forward to the world, whoever they were, whoever they are, who have LGBTQ um, rights uh, dismissed uh, against the law, uh, harsh punishment, harsh treatment, etc if that's America next time, wherever it is, if they're sports washing, that's a two way street. The light goes back on them too uh the the craven corruption with FIFA and its hangers-on, all of that side of things. It doesn't matter if it's Qatar, it doesn't matter who it is next time. If they're in the sports washing business as to put as opposed to putting on a tournament in a selection of countries, like this could have been so, done so differently in the Middle East. This could have been a great tournament. Um, I wouldn't know how to, logistically to organize it, but like there's no way you can't look on it as some form of sports washing event. And as was Argentina in 78, as Clive talks about, we didn't understand half of those. Well, now we do. If we don't get smart about these things, if we don't start taking back, it's not that the game shouldn't have been held in the Middle East and that Qatar shouldn't have been a part of it. It just shouldn't have been done like this. We know how it was done. Gianni Infantino wearing his sneakers, claw mossing, as they say in Ireland, bullshitting everybody, about how everything's great and everything's wonderful, and like it's time to push back whenever we can. And if that leads into a whole bunch of what about, then great. If let, let's get our sins out there and let's get people talking about it, but let's not push everything under the carpet, let's get everything over the carpet.
1: I I completely agree and I've seen lots of people saying, you know, well it's in the USA uh, as well as Mexico and Canada in 2026, you know, are we going to talk about things like hope reproductive so. rights? Yeah, absolutely so, yeah. Number 1, like I hope so. I really really hope so. Um but I, you know, look, I would say that this tournament's slightly distinct in that first off, I mean the actual Qatari, I don't really know whether to refer to them as government, because there aren't really elections, but regime, shall we say, are involved in this in a really hands-on way. Like more than, you know, whether Biden's still the president in 2026, I don't know, but more than the US president, the Mexico president, like more than their going to be that said we're kidding ourselves if hosting all world cups olympic games they're all kind of sports washing to a degree like look who was there mugging with the players as well um at you know at the trophy presentation macron like he's got no fucking business there <laughs> quite frankly but we all know why he is we all know why he is because he if france get their moment he remembers what happened in 98 when a team that's like largely yeah largely made up of like um players from lazuli and and you know from french colonies and things like that he wants that moment that's what he wants he wants to be mugging with them so that's like that's an element of sports washing but i think like when you see the trophy presentation and the the robe which i should have looked this up yeah yeah bished is put on messi um, you know, and obviously, look, by the Emir of Qatar, who, who happened to own the football club that Messi plays for. So kind of his boss there. Um, it has to be said. So Messi's not like a complete bystander in that, but. You know, the the reason they've done that is, is really obvious because when all of this conversation and discussion goes away, those images live forever. Like you guys were talking about ticker tape in Argentina in 78. I bet you anyone that watched that tournament, that's what they remember. They remember yeah. the ticker tape. And like those, that image of Messi lifting the World Cup, that is eternal. That's 50 years, 60 years. And, you know, Qatar, they don't need the money to host the world cup that's not why they're doing this they don't need all those stadiums and everything it's it's a soft power move and look yeah putin
3: in the russia like exactly let's remember what happened after that like and it's not just about qatar but it is about football it is about the gianni infantinos of this world and no we shouldn't stop talking about it they want to do this we push back
1: Yep, and when Brazil won Copa America in 2019, do you know who presented them the trophy? Who elbowed his way onto the stage? Um, the newly voted uh, far right president Jair Bolsonaro, and he got in all the pictures. And again, another form of sports washing, I think, on a smaller scale than this. But anyway, that's. I, I'm glad we had that discussion. I wanted to have um, that discussion, and I'm, I'm glad you guys kind of <laughs> got there um, w- without me prompting. But let's let's kind of go back um a little bit to the football before we break and and kind of go into a bit more arsenal in the second half i mean first of all clive william saliba part of the france squad that have lost the world cup final albeit very little involvement in the tournament one of the few players that didn't even get a start in that kind of last group game against tunisia came on as a sub how how do you think this tournament? Where do you think this tournament puts him headspace wise? And when you think about like his Arsenal contract and things like that, do you, I mean, do you think there's any impact on William Saliba and Arsenal at all in all of this?
2: It's interesting. I was thinking about this today. I was doing some work outside the house. I was thinking about a few of our players, and because when they left us, they left the Arsenal bubble, right? And life could not be sweeter. We're sitting there with our best ever start, five points clear. Everyone loving everybody at Arsenal, right? You can't, you can't get a ticket, can't get, can't get into the pub. They don't get out of them, right? It could, it's just an incredible period at the moment. So within the Arsenal bubble, all those players are like ten out of tens. They go to the World Cup, and suddenly a few of them are just not first picks. Their reputations haven't quite. Transmitted across to the international bosses. It's not just our players; it happens to other players. I think of Dilip for Bayern Munich. I think he's at Bayern Munich, and right now he's nowhere near the Dutch team. And you know, he, so you do get a situation where systems, formations, maybe drop a player down the pecking order compared to how we view them. That happened to quite a few of our players. Jayzoo to be another good example, right? So, um, and Saliba now, probably understandably, behind Rafa Varane, twenty eight, twenty nine, won a few medals, blah, 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 experienced player in the back four. You can see it. Once they went to a back four, not a back three, his time was reduced. And I do think how we, how we pick these players up, I think, you know, let's get back to what our job is, which is primarily to support and criticise, but hopefully support more often. Um, we have to pick them back up again, I think we have to pick up the the vibe we had before to make sure that they are recognized that you know despite not having the minutes they we 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 hoped some would have particularly Saliba we need to make sure that they are brought back into the into the Arsenal family per se and there are others like Saka for example when we might have to Widened the door for his head because he, everyone's telling him he's in the team of the tournament in various teams. And uh, not, keep. yeah, exactly. As a Brazilian paper today, doing the
1: most Le keep thing ever by putting him in the team of the tournament, by giving him six out of ten. For the yeah, tournament, exactly. For Le keep is like
2: a fourteen out of ten. Yeah, exactly, and Mbappe got a big number though, Funny enough, but um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think so. It's going to be interesting to how see how they're incorporated him, you know, and and brought back in on an even keel. But really, the trick is to just reset the goals. Remind people what we're trying to achieve, restate the goals, and get everybody back mentally aligned to the targets. I think we all knew we had 14 games to play pre-World Cup break, so we had a target to reach. We had a we had an end point. And I think, um, basically, that target's been reached. Now we have to set new targets, right? And I think that's the manager's job, right? To sit them all down in that room at Arsenal and say, right boys, this is it. And I think Sleeper is one of those boys as well.
1: That would have been a much better question to ask last, to be a segue into the actual Arsenal <laughs> section, but I'm uh, going to kind of just bring an end to the world cup section. Just, I'm going to ask each of you, um, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Paul first because it sounds like he's got some music ready, um, to go, <laughs> to go with this. Um, just, I mean, your moment of the World Cup, Paul, and it, yeah. I, I mean, it doesn't have to be one specific, it could be like more of a general theme, but I, I guess the bit you liked the most.
3: Yeah, look, obviously I had I had my struggles with the Qatar tournament, but the it, you always need that grounding with the home crowd and they didn't really, they rented one. Um, when this tournament really grounded itself was Morocco's run in the... Uh, quarterfinals, uh, semifinals, the the games against uh, was Spain and Portugal. I think the celebrations at the end, the connection with a real home crowd, uh, the spontaneity, the utter exuberance, the thrill, the excitement, the just wide-eyed, giving it all on the pitch, like great performances, outplaying the names, the European names. Like you, you need the. You need the guy who needs to be taken down, and that's always Europe. Everybody, everybody hates Europe. You know, your Spain, your Portugal, great—they lost. You know, that, that's the stuff of World Cups. You still need Europe to be one of the big bad guys next time around so that everybody has to beat them too. Like we, we get to be the baddie in every tournament. Uh, some European team getting taken down by the the supposed little guys, and Morocco were that team, and just absolutely fantastic, playing brilliant football, all on the line, uh, tremendous arc and story with their coach, the celebrations at the end, the praying to Mecca with the fans, um, uh, Just like just visually, that brought that tournament home to that area of the world in a way that Qatar, I don't think, had been able to, but Morocco did and could. And that, to me, You know, outside of possibly the best ever final, uh, that was the piece that made this tournament get grounded for me. I I love the Morocco arc, the journey, the celebrations, their families on the pitch, the fella dancing with his mother. Um, It's just like, that's real. Like, no... $4 billion is going to make that moment. That's something that comes just organically from those players, that moment. Fantastic stuff.
1: Yeah, that's the thing about World Cups, that they're really not just about who wins them. Um, And that's why teams like put themselves on the line just to qualify and when you see teams qualify they go absolutely mental and they know they've got probably very little chance of winning but you know just getting there and maybe being the Morocco being the Cameroon 1990 being the Ghana 2010 you know just having that um, I didn't intentionally just pick African teams there but probably you know just fit that uh, that quite well and um, I've been listening to some really good podcasts. I've been listening to during the World Cup is it's actually a history podcast called "The Rest Is History," mm. and they've done a brilliant series about like every nation that's in the World Cup and some of the dynamics at play. And yeah, you see like Tunisia v France, Morocco v France, and some of this stuff that again I I you know vaguely knew about, but. Really, really brought it to me. And, and, and I think, um, just because your moment of the tournament's probably similar to mine, Paul, I'm going to take host's privilege and, and kind of tie my answer in because I think this was the tournament of the underdog. And one of the things I really liked was actually other than guitar themselves there wasn't really like a terrible team the terrible teams were like Belgium and Denmark like teams with good players who didn't perform but you looked at teams like Japan um, I thought Saudi Arabia looked really good obviously Morocco Australia got through to the round of 16 and and some of these and and then when Australia played Argentina and you think okay you've had your moment you're in the round of 16 you're all going to get a selfie with Messi and go home like they gave Argentina a game that was 2-1 like it wasn't five nil and you saw very very few games that weren't contests so for me my kind of moment of the tournament was i i wasn't able to watch as much as i liked because in the uk a lot of the games kicked off at 7 p.m and when you have a toddler that's the worst time for a game to kick off because it interferes it like cuts right across the bedtime routine but there was a night where i was actually presenting one of the the world cup podcasts with phil um and so i got to watch the unfolding of the japan spain germany group which was absolutely just a proper roller coaster a bit like the final actually and earlier in the day there'd been upsets as well and those are my my favorite parts of any world cup usually semi-finals are better than finals i think that's been inverted um this year but the final day of the group is just such a brilliant time Um, at the World Cup. And again, you get, yeah, you get a lot of those countries who again, probably know they're not going to win it, but like, yes, we, we qualified and now we're through to the knockouts and that's like the next kind of target and the drama you get with those games simultaneously. So I think like the last day of each group, nearly every group was really, really fun and dramatic, but particularly that kind of the whole, um, yeah, the Germany, Spain, Japan, kind of thing i think that was my highlight of the tournament what about you clive what was your whether it's a moment or just your favorite thing about the tournament
2: yeah well we spoke about earlier how i've hopefully been educated by this tournament but also from a football side of things there is a leveling out in in coaching and that's why there was not too many disorganized embarrassed teams because their coaches are now, they understand about what areas to cover in the pitch, what areas not to vacate, you know, how to mid-block, low-block. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you can look at the games and you can see there are some teams that come with a certain identity, and they play to that identity, and it make it work for them. And, you know, Rock are almost like the Greece, weren't they, of previous years? And they're so athletic, so fit, Um, so aggressive in the central areas. I think it's just wonderful to see this global identity of coaching and coaching ideas being shared and also seeing brave coaches. I mean, I I look at football this way and to see what Deschamps did in the final, I just want to applaud him for making those changes, for being brave when the whole world is watching, to make a change, to change... To change the fortunes of his of his team of his country in the best way he he could see, And he did it against Morocco as well. Just wonderful bravery of, of the coaches, wonderful bravery of some of the players, wonderful bravery of these teams to really try to compete. And I I, I really enjoyed that aspect. And in the end, for all the things we spoke about earlier that are a little bit more depressing about outside of the game and how the game is is changing. Football really did come forward and say, you know what, mate? When it comes down to it, I've got you. When the game starts and the ball starts rolling on the grass, I've got you. And if you love this game, right now today, I love this game as more, as as much as any other day, <laughs> you know, and even more so. And so for all the things that wear us down and that we open ourselves up to the, the game, really, I, I, I really love it. That's what I wanted to say, really.
1: What a brilliant way to end part one. And um, you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to do the ad readouts. Uh, We're going to wheel Elliot off the substitute bench to do those. The bit he does best, bringing him on a little bit like a Lautaro Martinez figure um, to do that. And I've always wanted to say this, but we will be back after a word from our sponsors.
4: Thank you, Tim. You're doing a great job. But obviously, before you continue, we've got to tell you about... The best platform for starting your own e-commerce site, that is Shopify. I've done it. I've used it. Shopify, cha-ching, that sound you hear is your business making its first sale. Look, I um, have had to create e-commerce platforms before for friends or for little side things that I've done along the lines in my life. And it's one of those things that you just assume will be a giant pain in the neck and impossible to get started with because there's so many things you have to think about. Shipping, taxes, um, how to just process a payment how to get all that information sent to someone who buys something when you're done. Can you do it on Instagram? Can you do it on TikTok? Can you do it on Facebook? So on and so forth. Guess what? Shopify does all of that. You don't even have to physically have the product you're selling. They'll do it. You want to drag and drop videos in or drag and drop images in or make it look all spiffy and nice. They make that simple. They'll take care of the payment part, the tax part, the shipping part, all of it. Um, You just give them a website address and the rest is pretty much uh, done for you. The best platform for building your own e-commerce site. It is... Um, Not just powerful, it's empowering. And I think the digital economy has created so many opportunities for people to find their way of taking their creativity and sharing it with the world. And this is a tool that just makes that simple. Um, There's 24-7 support, free on-demand business courses. So Shopify's in your corner every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world score their first sale with Shopify and you can too. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify um, they will get you started. All you have to do is try out Shopify for free today and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash arsenalvision, all lowercase for some reason, arsenalvision. Go to shopify.com slash arsenalvision, all lowercase, to start selling today, shopify.com slash arsenalvision. And if you want to stay healthy, now you got a business, but you want to stay healthy because you know if you're not healthy, how are you supposed to have a successful business, right? Take care of your body first. And the way you can do this with AG1 Every morning, I put a bit of it in some water, drink it down, tastes good, gets rid of a whole shelf full of gummy vitamins that aren't probably delivering anything and things like that. What is AG1? It's 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Okay? Special blend of ingredients that support gut health. That was a big reason I took it. Your nervous system, your immune system, your energy. Another big reason I took it because I had become a little too dependent on coffee, in case you can't tell that by how I talk. Recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. So why incorporate it into your life? Well, Because you're going to reap the health benefits, taking fewer uh, supplements, saving money in doing that, and then also taking something that actually works. It's lifestyle-friendly. So if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, daily-free, gluten-free, no problem, contains less than a gram of sugar, so you can feel good about taking it. Uh, costs less than $3 a day. So like, you know, if you're having an expensive coffee, maybe you don't have to do that. It's certainly going to be less than all of those various gummy vitamins you're taking. It has over seven thousand five five-star reviews. Basically, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash vision. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash vision to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Clive, is that enough of that? Indeed. Now that back to you, Tim.
1: Okay, welcome back to part two of the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. And in part one, we obviously discussed the World Cup, the World Cup final, um, and uh, global global politics. Um, so pretty standard <laughs> um, kind of. <laughs> podcast fodder there um for us but that was very much the undercard to is the overcard a thing that's not that's not a thing is it the main event of the weekend which which actually went before um the undercard um in a break from tradition arsenal nil juventus 2 at Emirates stadium um i'm not proposing to go into a blow-by-blow account of the game because i haven't seen it (laughs) (laughs) i i i i was given a free ticket but i was a good husband and gave it to my wife and um took and and took uh took care of our daughter for the day who um yeah uh, soiled herself twice in close succession (laughs) which actually sounds a bit like a capsule review of the game paul you did see the game you've probably seen it four or five times by now (laughs) I, I didn't see any of the game, and I haven't even troubled myself to look at the goals because why would I inflict that on myself? But I looked at the stats from the game, and what it looked like to me, Paul, was that Arsenal had a load of shots, played against the deep block, maybe didn't create as many clear cut chances we'd like, but had all the ball, had all the running, conceded two own goals, lost two nil. Am I in the right kind of ballpark here?
3: Scored two g- own goals. Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> Yes, I have watched it twice. So on the average, us three podcasters have all seen the game once. So that's good. Um, Look, it wasn't that... You know how it is. We're very results-biased, outcome-biased. Like, I don't actually think this performance was that much different to the other two mid-preseason games that we won and everybody was perfectly happy with and blah, blah, blah. It's just we scored two goals in this on the wrong end. Um, yeah, look, as you might expect, uh, even though this was much closer to our full 11, um, still, I mean, Granit Chak is just back from the World Cup, party's finding his feet. We got Vieira on the right wing, we got Nelson on the left, and he gets injured, and then we bring in Marquinhos, uh, after just something like 20 minutes of the game. Um, we got Eddie finding his way with these th- this uh, new constellation of players around him. Um, you know, um, y- y- you're not going to expect perfect uh, uh, synchronicity in the team. Still pretty good. Um, it's actually a pretty decent watch, Tim. Given that you haven't seen it, um, I-, I bet you'd be surprised how decent a performance it is. But it's not great. I mean you know it's not wonderful we don't create enough high quality chances uh, in the box but we create plenty of chances in, in and around the box i think eddie had something like seven shots uh, had the ball in the net twice hit the post once um you know a couple of key passes from him and he he's definitely going to be one of the things we talk about uh Partly from this game
1: and on the list, yeah.
3: <laughs> so like uh, I bring him up not because I think he was great or terrible. It's just uh, things seem to come back to him. Uh, look, I think the the po- really positive takeaway in this game was uh, it's a strange game to say it, but I think Vieira arrived. I thought he was fucking great, absolutely fucking great. Um, now he's done good things before. He's had great moments. But, like, I think he's been enjoying this five or six weeks to meld. He, uh, as uh, Elliot said to me when we were doing the, po- the post-match instant reaction, yes, we did one for the this crappy Juventus game. Um, and we had stocks rising and falling and all that stuff. Um, but, like, Vieira didn't have a preseason. He's kind of been brought in. There's going to be a transition year. Well, that's what you would say, but they're probably hoping he contributes certainly in the second half of this season. Um, I thought he was really good, really at it, really on it, really enjoying himself, uh, connecting, making things happen. He's still working out his relationship with Ben White, um, so that I don't think they have that perfectly there. But if I was to come away from this feeling really good about something, um, I can see Vieira having a pretty good run into the second half of the season. It's, it feels to me like he's landed. He's worked out where Nando's is, where he gets his dry cleaning done. You know how how do, where the best parking spots at London Colony are. You know the shortest route to the car after practice, so you get out of the parking lot. like he's just to me, he's settled. Okay, he's about to meet British weather, but um, I think he he can be a significant player for us in the second half. And I wasn't. Wasn't 100% sold that he was ready to do that this season. I was hopeful. Um, and the rest of it was pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. But yeah. but not great.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's I pre-season. guess. pre-season. Tim, what are you expecting from me?
3: <laughs> I know your views on it. I know <laughs> Matt uh, Giant Gooner's views on it. I know my view, views on it are pre-season is the real season or mid preseason <laughs> is the real season. It was pretty good. But but like we don't like losing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I know people have alluded to the fact that Arsenal did actually have a really good preseason and that was clearly significant in the, yeah. the run up to um the actual business of the league season. I'd say where there's a distinction there. I think preseason really matters in the non-tournament summers and you've actually got your team together. Like I remember the yeah. summer of two thousand three. Um, I actually believe it or not, I went to a couple of friendlies. I, I went to Glasgow for a long weekend, saw us play Rangers and Celtic. No tournament that summer, so we had our whole team together the whole season, mm-hmm. and you could just see it. And that happens once every four years, and this was that year um where where the team was together, whereas this, like mid-pre-season, they're not. And you look at this game, um, which I haven't done, um, but you look at you look at the team sheet, I mean, really. From you know the usual front three, Saka, Martinelli, and Jesus aren't there. Obviously, one of those is not coming back anytime soon. Emil Smith is not there, and then Clive. The other, the other thing that happens in this game that I know about is that Reese Nelson um, goes down injured. And and Paul's talked there about Fabio Vieira and how good he looked. We're going to need him um, in the second half of the season, particularly if we continue in the Europa League knockouts. We don't know what that looks like yet. Um, But Rhys Nelson, um, you know, particularly in the short term, I think was someone that was probably going to feature a bit. Um, Particularly, I look at that Oxford United game and and now his injury. Um, I mean, do you think that's, it's obviously significant for Reese. Do you think that's potentially significant for Arsenal or not?
2: Well, I I think, um, I don't think Nelson Nelson's going to stop us going into the market. That's my view. I think there are minutes for him. And he is improving player and he seems to be improving his mentality and his um, comfort levels in the group. I think he looks more comfortable to me. And he's starting to show a little bit more of his skill. You know, the way he manipulates the ball, he receives it now. It's not like, uh, he's just saying, uh, I can do this now. He, he, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, he's finally worked it out. I can do this. Also, he needs to do it because in the last six months of his contract and he wants to stay. And so suddenly there's a focus around it. And hence... Disappointed Even if all. he
1: doesn't want to stay, he's playing for a contract one more. playing,
2: He's playing for his football future. You know, you think about, this is a terrible thing about football. It's absolutely such a ruthless, ruthless sport. You know, we just see the cars and the Instagram, right? But it's a ruthless sport. And he's been at Arsenal since he was know, a dot. You know, I'm am eight, nine years of age. His whole family has been supporting him all that time. He's 23 years of age now, he's got six months to go and he wants to stay and there's no contract offer on the table yet. He gets injured in the window when he's more likely to play, when there's FA Cup games, Europa League games around the corner. This is a major moment and your life can change in these moments. People can make a decision, which is for the club, which could relegate you down the pecking order. That's a major problem. Major problem. My doctor just started barking. <laughs> That's a major problem. So Hey I, I Bob, feel for Did you
3: see I was just gonna say, did you see the big hug that Eddie gave him when he was coming off the pitch? It was not like your usual kind of consulate. like Eddie gets at the the point that Nelson's at in his like it's absolute massive kick in the balls for Nelson at this the most critical moment of his career and I – like you can read too much into these things, but like you could just see what that what Eddie was trying to tell him.
1: Yeah, and also sorry, just to interrupt there, but like I've seen loads of tweets today about Amy Martinez and like um, you know Burn Leno getting injured in that Fulham game, and everyone kind of saying like Neil Mope injuring Bernd Leno leads to like Emmy Martinez winning the Golden Glove um, at the World Cup, and then, they should have um, shot Hitler. <laughs> yeah, when he it's, was seven. <laughs> exactly. It's just like you just get shoot these... the bastard. I know it looks <laughs>
3: cruel, but just shoot that seven-year-old bastard in shorts. And but yeah, exactly. Pecan. And
1: and that that's like a really pivotal moment that's gone for Emmy Martinez in his career. You know that just that random goalkeeper gets injured, gets a run in the side, gets his move, gets into you know. Th- but things can go the other way um, as well. Uh, Clive, sorry, I I interrupted you there on 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 Reese.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you did because someone came to the door. <laughs> so basically um no Clive, while you were at the door, we shot
3: seven year old Hitler.
2: Okay, whatever. <laughs> I leave if I leave you and Tim alone, I don't know where this podcast is gonna go. <laughs> um so yeah, it looked like it looked like a major moment. I always come back to a story. I always say I'm sure I'll tell you a story before, but I was quite close to the club and there's a kid who's in the academy from the age of age of eight and he got to 18 and they were just deciding he was going to have his pro contract the head of the academy came to watch in in a game a trial game he stood there for 12 minutes and said no no contract and it just makes you wonder all that time 10 years of consistent effort can come down to a very small window you know, and I, I don't think we realize this, how ruthless the game actually is. We all love football. You all want to play it. Not many of us can. Only a finite people can get to that level, and they have windows. And I, I hope, for Reese's sake, that his has not closed completely.
1: Yeah, and you know, again, just continuing the theme of we only ever see it when it goes the right way, right? Because we can't go into alternate universes and say, well, actually, um, if Tuba Akpom had got like a five-game run in the team in 2014, maybe he'd be the best striker in the world right now. You look at how Harry Kane's Tottenham career came about, like. It didn't look like they were particularly nurturing him um, for superstardom when they sent him to Leighton Orient and Millwall. Like, careers are weird, basically. Yeah, but Ashley, Ashley Cole, Cole, maybe. Yeah, yep. exactly, yeah. like We could have maybe... shot seven-year-old Stalin. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 yeah. Or, like, maybe Silvino's passport is okay. And Ashley Cole never comes through. And, you know, like all, all of these little kind of moments, um, you know, our careers hinge on these little moments. And this is a good segue into, uh, the question I was going to ask you, uh, Paul, not about seven-year-old, um, despots. Uh, <laughs> damn it. That but... rules out Mao Tse Tung. Um, and, and so, Emile Smith-Rowe um, not involved in this in this squad at all. Now, I know we had this discussion a couple of weeks ago and, and Elliot was doing his whiskers stuff and we were like, look, you know, actually, if you look back at the quotes, there was never any kind of certainty that it was very much, you know, end of December. We hope he can be involved in these games. Now, I haven't, I've only seen the words on the page. I haven't seen Arteta say them. So maybe um, I've got this wrong. I detected a little bit, tetchiness isn't the word but when Arteta was talking about Smith-Rowe and he said we need him well you know we hope he can train we need him on the pitch like I don't know um whether this is just the where my brain's at but I really detected a kind of come on son (laughs) Get, get it sorted you know um and that sounds really harsh when a player's injured but obviously when a player's like constantly injured I know there's been like um hearsay about how well he looks after himself he's referenced that himself as well and I don't know and and look we read a lot of us myself included read the tea leaves wrong on Saliba right and thought oh Arteta hates him it's not going to happen and lo and behold it happened and it was all fine but I just detected a little bit of Arteta's intonation it was like come on son come on like, up you get, let's go, let's go, you know. Um, yeah. It reminded me a little bit of when Jurgen Klopp talked about um, Daniel Sturridge and he said he needs to learn what pain is. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I, I don't know about you. Did you get those vibes when he was talking about Emil Smith-Rowe?
3: I got vibes. I just don't know. Like, there could be lots of things, but there's something there. Uh, I There's definitely something around Emil Smith-Rowe and Arteta, not necessarily in a negative way, and you're not saying it's negative. Um, the other thing he said, the one before that that caught my attention was about a week before that, where he kind of, I felt he was setting expectations that, look, uh, he's going to need time to get going, get fit, get whatever, it, it kind of setting expectations about when he might get into the flow of things, etc. And I think they realized the most important thing right now is that Smith Rowe has his own timeline that's somewhat independent of what we need for the next game and this and that, because like, we haven't done all this. We haven't sent him off for this operation to snip something and reattach it somewhere else in his groin uh, to solve an ongoing problem he's had for a year or two. They want it fixed so that he can settle into being part of the squad. I think it's almost a kind of let's be a bit more medium term about this and stop asking me day-to-day questions about, will he fix our problem this weekend or next weekend? Um, I I think the other point on Smith-Rowe is, and with some of these young players, I wonder if Arteta thinks certain players, well, I know that he thinks certain players need to be challenged, and he'll put something out there. And he'll put it out there publicly. And when he gave uh, Smith-Rowe the number 10, he laid down a challenge. He said, that's a, basically said, that's a big number. And with that comes, with the big number comes big responsibility. He says he's up to it. So let's see what you yeah. got, is basically he, he, what he said.
1: Yeah. He used the phrase, like, even if I don't think he's ready for it yet. Yeah. Um, with, with that. And, and so that's clearly like, he laid down that he thought, mm, I I I don't necessarily think he's ready for it, but he says he is and I want to go with that energy and, that, and and you're right that was a challenge to Smithrow I think and I th- I think there is something in that I think you're right I think maybe he is issuing a bit of a challenge and to your point about um, you know he likes to issue these challenges to players was it Balogun who talked about his loan spell and said something like Arteta said I'm not going to watch you yep because yep. I know you're a good footballer, I want to see how you respond to this, and 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 yeah, I, I, I want get... to hear
3: what people say about you. Yeah, and kind of a are are you becoming a man? That's what I want to hear them talking to you about, right? Not going off like a kid on a loan or like go there, impose yourself in the dressing room on the pitch. That's basically what he told Balogun to do. And that, and you contrast that with some of the other loans that have gone on and people kind of disappear into the ether more don't work out than do. And he's, he lays down a marker for them and like some will respond, some don't, but if they don't respond, like, I think he's smart enough to know who he's talking to. I, I don't mm. think he comes in with the same line with every player, but I think he knows the buttons. Like we can see that now. He knows your buttons and he knows Smith Rowe's buttons and he's laying down a challenge. And that's what I think is going on.
1: Clive, I'll let you come in on that because you look like you're itching to.
2: No, no. I was just uh, with, ba- with, ba- <laughs> with, ba- with Balogun um, and Smith Rowe. It's, it's a similar type conversation that he had with them. And, and I, it's, just, it's just down to emotional maturity. We all, we all mature at different times and sometimes you need to leave mummy right and go and sit in some dig somewhere right and um that's all it takes and and and, and cook your own evening meal and, and and learn about life and see how people
3: and learn french yeah
2: well whatever it is whatever works for you to broaden your to broaden the mentality that you need to have to compete at the top level when you're seeing people playing like at Huddersfield and at Reams, I think that's how you used to pronounce it. Um, yes. Basically, um, basically, it's a matter of you're now playing with people who are playing for their mortgages. You're not at the green fields of London Colney when you're already getting more money than some of those players are getting. You are now playing with people who are playing for their mortgages and still got families to look after, and their family's family. And so every single game matters. Every single pass matters. How are you going to deal with that increased pressure? And that builds character, and I think this is what he wants to see them happen. When you look at Balogun, for example, he looks built. Um, you know, he looks very strong, very physical. You think, well, he just must be ready. But you listen to him talk, and his voice, and he sounds quite young. You know, and I think that's what's really needed to happen for him. And and he seems to be doing really, really well and growing it within himself. And sometimes that's more than what the player does numbers, passes expected goals etc seeing how comfortable they are on the pitch and I think to Paul's point about Vieira how comfortable he is on the pitch now he's looking like a first 12 player he's knocking on the door hard mate hard and it's that comfort factor and I think Reese is growing in that Vieira's growing in that and I think if anything comes out this mid preseason I see a couple people growing in comfort. I've got some things to say about Eddie later, but a couple people growing in comfort. And that's the most important thing for us as we look forward to the next two-thirds of the season.
1: Yeah, well said. And, and um, I'll probably come back to the comfort thing um, in a minute because uh, I want to talk a bit about Ben White. But I think the bit, certainly the biggest conversation I saw uh, online, and I, I don't think this is any great surprise, by the way, um, was about Eddie and Ketia. Um and, and, you know, uh, his, I guess, his performance in this game, um, if you want to put it like that. Uh, Elliot, I know you... Uh, Elliot, sorry, Paul, I know you spoke uh, with Elliot about this um, at length on the instant reaction. I will give you another bite of that, Cherry. Um, maybe a bit like Eddie himself, you know, have five shots. Maybe one goes off the post. Maybe one you're offside. Um, but Clive, I'll stay with you um, on this. I mean, it... Like in one respect, I really get it. We've lost a really, really important player and Eddie's the one coming in. And so of course there's going to be scrutiny of the performance and and everything like that. I I, I did respond to a tweet I saw online because someone like put up the video of him missing quite an easy chance where he hits the post and said something like, I'm really concerned about having Eddie for the next couple of months. And I was like, don't worry about him in front of goal. He'll be, that is the, that's the one area where we're probably upgrading. Actually, it's every fucking thing else that you kind of want to, want to be looking at. Like, I reckon he might even better. Gabriel Jesus five goals in 14. I think Eddie might better that over 14 games. I think more the question is um, the overall influence, which won't be the same, but it will be, can it be close enough? I mean what did you make of Eddie in this game um and I guess the discussion we've had quite a lot recently about the prospect of how he's placed to to take that place in the team over the next couple of months.
2: Yeah, when I've been going on my dog walks I've been thinking about this a lot actually and um more more thinking about how I analyze Eddie because you know we see other we see certain players clearer than others, you know. Smith Rowe's been somebody I have to really think about, you know. And it is another one I have to think about. So why, did, why am I quite harsh on him on occasions? Why do I have these I don't doubts? Know, Clive. Well, I'm going to tell you, Paul. Right? So, <laughs> so when you, when you judge a player, the way I judge a player is on it's almost like on on the four corners of the coaching DNA, right? So physical, technical, psychological, and social. I believe a team has a physical, technical, and psychological balance. Right. So physical and technically, I think we're w I think we're much better now. It's a physical group and a technical group. Right? And so psychology of the team is really, really good. So you have people with different psychological profiles in our back line. So you've got two, you know, just take our three b- big defenders. Both one two wanna press in, one wants to sweep. Balance. All physical. We have an inverted fallback, no happy inside. Physical and and technical, and psychologically, he's happy in those areas. So it looks good. We have a holding midfielder that psychologically is happy carrying the weight of the wagon wheel all around them with all different exits. It fits, right? So we have Odegaard, who's our technical leader. It fits. It fits with our group. We have two wide killers, and they have a connection player in the middle, and his psychological profile of that connecting player is somebody that actually doesn't really care too much about himself. His whole role is to make other people feel different. And so I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. And I heard Russell Westbrook, for those people who follow the Lakers, Russell Westbrook used to be an egotistical player, just now a six-man player off the bench. And he actually said, my job is to make everyone else feel better this year and play better. I listened to his interview and I thought, Bingo. This is my Eddie thing. This is what's. This is what's. This is what I'm not quite happy with. Eddie has always been brought up as a killer centre forward, a lone centre forward that's judged on goals. The things that we're trying to get into him is all the other stuff, Tim. To, to, to quote you, psychologically, he's still trying to convince us. So what he's more focused on. Is the things he thinks are gonna convince us, which is the currency of goals. When actually, if he focused on doing everything he can to make others better, I think the psychological profile of Eddie will be far more suited to my brain. Well, not everyone thinks the same as me, to my brain and what the team needs. We sat here last year, probably a year, kind of a year ago, not maybe a bit more, talking about influence and value between Lacazette and Aubameyang and it was a similar thing we had one guy that saw himself as a goal scorer one guy that saw himself as an enabler facilitator it's not quite as stark as those two I, I granted, but you see where I'm going because I think also trying to round Eddie and in this game at the weekend my favorite Eddie bit was when he charged down the goalkeeper he charged yeah. down the goalkeeper and I thought there you go There you are. He's scored a lot of goals doing that. Exactly. If he, for me, to convince him. He
3: nearly has it off the guy's toe. It's right there. It's absolute classic. He's like a shark in the water. He's he's slow build up and then right in, right under his toe. And the guy just about gets it away from Eddie.
2: So, so for me, I saw the shot that he missed. Lovely I looked at I looked at his contact, I looked at he opened out his foot. It was beautiful. Him hit the punch. With his left foot, right? Right? With oh. his left foot. So you could say yeah. you could say he could have whipped onto his right and two touches, touch, touch, slot, get create a different angle. If you wanna get technical, but I looked at it and thought, you know what, mate, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. I'm not worried about you because you will score goals I don't expect you to score and you will miss goals I think you should score. And that's Eddie and Eddie's not going to change, right? So, So I don't worry about the goal scoring aspect. It's everything else. And there are players that are out there, in my opinion, that naturally bring everything else, naturally bring that threat, that physicality, and there's a physical difference between Jesus and Eddie and the way they influence and move people. Another thing that he has to do for me, forget the goal, it will come, the goals will come. He has to read the game better. He has to read when to be available. He has to read when to move. And the reason why I know he's not doing this so well, because he keeps making fouls because he arrives too late. And he's not making smart fouls, he's making dumb fouls when you've got people pressed into corners. So he has to read the game better, be more of a facilitator, more of an enabler, and I think he will then he will then maybe not say satisfy me. That's the wrong way to see it. But I think maybe satisfy people who have these worries and doubts about the gap between Jesus and Eddie. Don't if I said to you, if honestly if he was playing for me, you know, what I'd say to him, I don't care if you score today, but I want to see you on that pitch. I don't care if you score. Because if he plays his normal game, he will score. If we can get him to not focus on scoring and focus on everything else, that's how we're going to get a rounded player. Because this team, the way it's constructed, uh, needs a rounded centre forward. It can't have a jogger. It can't have a walker. It can't have somebody who I can't read is going to spark into life. He needs to be there and consistent. I think that's my issue. It's a psychological balance. The, The quality... Look, we've spent forty five million quid and sent it forward, right? We didn't do that because we had a, we had better quality sitting in behind him. So let's 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 grow up. The quality's not quite there, but to close that gap is a psychological thing. The football thing is something we'll always debate and we'll debate forevermore and that's just why we're fans and football fans, etc. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. I completely agree on like the psychological angle because one area where I think he's come on so much is like the back to goal stuff. And he's got really good at like developing some of these tricks like I've, that I've seen in, I saw like um, the Milan game, for example, where he does that little like flick round the corner, then chases it. And he looks so much more physically imposing and determined. And it's clear in his brain and with the coaches, it's like, right, you've got to work on your back to goal stuff. I never saw that in him two years ago. I thought he'd never never be able to do that but he's doing it i think he's doing that to a good level but you're right i think there's other stuff you know and it's it's more holistic than that like it's a bit like okay need to be able to play with my back to goal check but you're right i think it's a bit more holistic paul um i'm not going to shut you out of this what what I, I and you know you're always i i'm probably between you both on eddie um but he he did impress me lovely. a lot
3: lovely (laughs) so you're between me and clive but on eddie yeah yeah
1: well yeah 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 um a proper pylon but like he really did impress me last season and i don't know if that's just maybe i'm being more generous because i just saw stuff i never thought i'd see um and and like when i see that in a player i think okay you have the capacity for improvement and doing stuff that i didn't think you could do i want to see more of it but i think that means he's there's a willingness you know um to do that so i'm kind of maybe not as high on eddie as as you have been and and you were before he came into the team at the end of last season but i feel like i'm kind of getting there and this period will obviously be very pivotal um ask me again where i am in march but what did you make of i guess this eddie performance where he has five shots by the way um has a goal ruled out for offside which you know might on another day have been allowed. Um, yeah. where, where do you sit on him in this performance? And, and and I guess to continue the conversation about him being our, our centre forward for the next couple of months.
3: Yeah. See, the problem with Clive's analysis is I fully agree with it. Um, and it would have been what I would have said, but a lot less well. Um, and the difference maybe is I'm not quite as worried for whatever reason. So I uh, like I think that's a, that that's basically my analysis. The thing that Eddie needs to do he, he like any, he's kind of a throwback striker in some ways. He's young enough that he's adapting to the way the game's played that you're somewhere between sometimes you're a striker, sometimes you're a false nine and he's he's young enough and he's been under Arteta long enough that he's spent a huge amount of time learning the way we play <clears throat> and he's working on it. And he's he's dropping into midfield. He needs to be a little bit more sophisticated in how he links up the play, as Gabriel Jesus says. One of the problems when you're replacing Gabriel Jesus, the world's best pressing center forward and one of the best dropping into midfield connecty players is you're trying to replace a worldie. So people are like, uh, oh, I'm really nervous because there's going to be a drop off from where world class player is no longer available and very good player is all you have Left very good young player who's developing is all you have left. I mean, we've got problems if we lose Saka. we got problems if we lose Gabriel Marten- Martinelli, if we lose Odegaard, we have a problem. Now, maybe uh, people will say, Oh, we got Vieira. Well, like, I know I was high on him from this mid preseason game, but like, the Vieira I saw before that was not a guy I'd be happy doing Odegaard's job for a run of 10 games or 12 games or. If we lose um our number six, we got a problem. If we lose Granit Chaka, we probably have a problem Now, maybe Sambi would step up to that, but we don't know um like it's not just Gabriel Jesus that if you lose, we would have a problem um but there's a huge amount sh- now the good thing about uh Eddie is he's in his core he's a striker. So, he will get us some number of goals, to your point. I'll be shocked if he doesn't get us a goal tally from a center forward spot. The real question is how much does he step up into the connecty, dropping, rotating with the other players? Like, nobody's going to do it. Like, that chemistry as well that Jesus had with Martinelli in particular and that side of the pitch. Like, Eddie hasn't had those players to play with in this mid-season thing uh so he's got some learning to do we'll need a little patience um he's going to be desperate to get a goal because that's what he is a striker and that's how strikers are wired and i think clive's exactly right we don't we shouldn't care whether he scores or not he knows that's the that's the voice around the place that's what people are talking about clive's right that we shouldn't but it depends on what we were talking about Anybody who's tuned into social media and the way people talk and talk radio and this and that will be all about whether he scored a goal or not, which is kind of irrelevant to how we play, given that's not where our goals were particularly coming from. What you see in this this uh, game, and we have seen before, uh, with even with Lacazette and with, uh, with Martinelli, is Arteta shouting the guy's name all the time. Uh, Arteta's shouting all the way through this, and 50% of his vocabulary is Eddie. Eddie this, Eddie that, Eddie this, Eddie that, because it all keys off Eddie. So he knows that his job isn't just to put the ball in the net every now and then. Um, But to Clive's point, he's kind of got to let that Desire. If he gets a goal or we win our first couple of games with him as a starter, I think Clive will see a lot more of what we're hoping to see, which is him settling into the idea that his job is to help us win whoever scores. But he needs a little success early, either that goal and a win, or just a couple of wins in a row. And I think he'll settle into the idea, his idea, his role is to make the the attacking unit successful and functioning and help in all, uh, so many other ways than just putting the ball in the net and putting the ball in the net every now and then is something that he's going to do. He's good at it. I mean, when your striker misses by hitting the post with his left foot, that first-time shot, right, no touch beforehand, just wags it. Okay, there was a chance to score there, a good chance to score. Like That's how I like my
1: misses, <clears throat> and it's
3: also how I like my misses.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, exactly. That's the like I wouldn't be surprised if Gabriel Jesus missed that chance, to be honest. Oh, that's yeah. that's not uh, that's not exactly it. I, I think um from this conversation what I, I think I've brought out is Eddie's biggest KPI is when we do the post Brighton podcast, if we don't talk about him <laughs> almost, because whether he scored or not, we've won both games, he's been like a good part of them, and he's like he's not on like Elliot's little bullet <laughs> bullet point. Um, he doesn't get a stock rising or a stock falling. We just don't talk about him. You know, I I guess it's one of those kill the conversation things. And obviously at the moment we don't know how things are gonna go. I, I think my kind of um Jerry's final thought on that is anyone that's expecting Eddie Jesus. Um, or Gabriel Nketiah, you're going to be disappointed. He's not the same player. And you can't just ask someone to put someone else's skin on and be a different player. He's going to be Eddie. And the the question is, can he be the best Eddie he can be? And can the rest of the team bring that out? Can he bring out some of those other kind of things in his game? Can he bring his A game every three days? Um, You know, Those those are questions um, that are kind of TBD. Um, at the moment, but we'll yeah. see.
3: Can I add? My biggest worry about Eddie would be what happens if he doesn't have Saka, Martinelli, uh, Odegaard, um, <clears throat> Jacka, um, and and party behind him? Um, because that's when you really see a difference with Gabriel Jesus. I think if you lost one or two of those guys around him. Then, like Gabriel Jesus will will put in, give you that extra bit that maybe rides you out of it, and it's a lot to put on Eddie to make up for not having, say, Martinelli, and then you're missing Odegaard or Chaka or or party. That's that's when you know missing one guy in that front five or six, that's one thing. Missing two, three, yeah, Eddie can't do that, and Gabriel Jesus would have made a huge difference in those situations.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that in the Europa League this season. We haven't seen the same Eddie that we saw at the end of last season when he was yeah. flanked by Saka martinelli Odegaard. Uh, Clive, you look like you want to come in on that.
2: Yeah, only a little bit. I, I think it's, it's just focusing on the right details. So if Eddie can focus on things like ball retention, when you, how he arrives at the ball, the pace by which he arrives at the ball, and we keep the ball, Arsenal will flow. If we see the same flow, we won't, we won't be looking at who scored. Because we'd, we'd just take the three points, right? And we'd go home. You know, look at that Chelsea game before the break. Jason didn't score, but we we couldn't stop talking about him, right? Because of cause his overall influence, security, aggression, doing the right things at the right time. This is a team game, right? So I don't want... I'm looking at Eddie because I want the team to continue, right? That's the only reason. I'm not I'm not trying to dig him out. I just know, just by looking at this and think, okay... What do I need to see from you? What do I think you need to focus on that's gonna make everyone see you correctly? You know, and that's what I would say. Ball retention under pressure, buying fouls, being a presence, being a threat, doing what he did, pressing goalkeepers, pressing defenders, leading the press. He's a wonderful athlete. Um and he's improving rapidly. So I'm not dumb to what I'm seeing. I just need the psychological balance of his game to change to suit the, the very same players you're talking about, the ones you're saying, oh, it'll be great we've seen with Saka, Martinelli. They need the ball on time, mate. They need the ball on time. You can't mess about with them, boys. You know, you can't have an extra touch here and there. They need the ball on time, so your details are important. They're more important when you're playing with the top boys. That you are with the Europa League boys. That'll be my message to him. And if he does that, we'll have this conversation again. We won't be having it because we'll the results will continue and we'll be booking our trips to Barcelona next year and booking our hotels. That's what really matters, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think to finish on, a, I don't know whether to call it an upbeat note or not, but um, Paul, I'll, I'll go with you on this one. Uh, ben, what now... I think November player of the month was a particularly <laughs> tricky one, given that we played two games and one of them was Europa League, a dead rubber. However, I do think it was kind of significant that Ben White won it because I don't think that was about what he did in November. That almost, like, I really like it when stuff like this happens because I feel like the whole fan base was like, look, there isn't a November player of the month, but ben white you've been really fucking good this season and you deserve some kind of accolade and so it almost feels like um you know like a a a longer term award than that i don't know if you saw the video that he did um kind of thanking the fans for it and obviously you know well i say we all know what happened in the world cup we don't know what happened with him Mm. at the world cup i don't you know it's probably none of our business. I don't think we're ever going to find out because if people like David Ornstein, etc., are out in guitar and they're not getting it out of England, they're not getting it out of arsenal. It's probably not coming out. Um, and, and that's fine. By the way, like I said, not everything is our business to know. So we don't know exactly the circumstances and there have been rumors and hearsay, but I mean, how, obviously we, we can't know, not knowing exactly what happened. We don't really know what kind of state of mind he's in, but you know, do you think that that potentially makes a difference if he is feeling a little bit moon faced, a bit sorry for himself, or if something's happened like that, he's, he's had this kind of recognition, which, you know, your, your right back doesn't usually get from their own fans.
3: Yeah. If there's some truth that, um, it didn't gel between him and the world cup squad. Um, and, uh, and I say, if we don't know what happened, but, If we play along with that rumor for a moment, whatever it may be, whatever upset, um, whether it was something else, he comes back to Arsenal and the message he gets is, you're safe here. We get you. Uh, We value you. That's the first thing everybody wants to know, that you belong. After that, you worry about your place in the hierarchy and blah, blah, blah. But the first thing you want to know is that people got your, your back. And basically, Arsenal and its supporters said, whatever's going on in, in your life or on the world stage or blah, 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 you're safe here. You're good with us. We always got you. We went above and beyond to get you in the first place when everybody else said, that's a lot of money, and why him? And what would you want him for? And what's he done? We all Basically, we always got him, whatever air quotes you want to put around we and the supporters embraced him from immediately after the Brentford game (laughs) his his first game with us once we we put that and like that wasn't on him that was on us like this is a, a classic one where we put players into our mess and, and uh, point the finger at them. That was on the the chaos within our club and where things were at and COVID and blah. But basically from there on, uh, like we've had his back. He's been safe with us. The manager gets him. The club gets him. The supporters get him. Uh, it's a bit of a love affair with Ben White. And we basically immediately reminded him that we ground him, that he's he's one of us, it's all good. So now he did look a little. I thought he played pretty well, but he also looked slightly out of it at times in this game. There was a pass here, a pass there, which is totally under. Chaka was the same thing, playing pretty well and then like a goofy pass to nothing and nobody. So they are making that adjustment back to this, the back into the Arsenal bubble and getting going again this week in training. He's going to be ready. He's going to be up for it.
1: Yeah. And and he's not played either. Like yeah. Jack has been playing for a different team. Ben White hasn't played. He did a bit of training and yeah. and then went and and yeah, I completely agree. I I think like I I'm sure Ben White must have known when he came back like he knows he's one of Arteta's guys, right? Yeah. Like he must know that. But I I kind of bet at the risk of kind of patting us all on the back um as Arsenal fans, I bet privately Arteta's thinking Nice one, guys! Like because I can tell him I love him, and I know, and I know he knows it. But like, it, it means something else to get that kind of recognition um, from supporters. Um, Clive, do you want to add anything to that before we skedaddle?
2: Not much, really. It's just a player that I like. I got a soft spot for. I remember I did one of the instant reactions from the ground. I did one of the recordings, and and I think I must have mentioned his name about ten times. And I did another recording, I mentioned another five times. I I just really admire him as a football player. I, I really think he's got some he's got huge potential, you know. He's a very, very good all round footballer. Superb athlete. I think it's our Liverpool game. I thought he was fantastic in that game against a very good side. And that's where you can really judge people. And um so yeah, I, I look at him physically, technically, and what he brings to the group and I think, yeah, you'll you'll do for me and and so, yeah, I'm glad that, well, let's not pretend that it's always been that way. Cause at the start of the year, when was coming back, people were ready for him, you know, and they were looking at him and thinking, we're not sure he's a right back. We're not sure about this. and, and he's had to convince people, reconvince people, readjust to a new position. And now we don't look at anybody else in that position, you know? So as I can change people's minds and, you spoke about Eddie earlier, and I'm hoping he does the same, right? And Because um, we all need that, don't we, for the next, next six weeks or so, next seven, eight weeks or so, when Jesus is going to be out.
1: Yeah, I think if you take Tommy Asu out of the team at right-back you're doing something right quite frankly um let's leave it there for this week i'm sure we'll have another podcast on thursday i don't exactly know what christmas is going to do to our schedule but obviously we'll have instant reactions to to all of the games over the festive period and and podcasts coming out of our ears and everything like that but i imagine we'll have one before christmas at the end of this week um, I don't know, but we're also working on some exciting stuff in the new year. We'll probably have something for you in about mid-January. Um, nice and kind of exclusive and exciting. Um, I won't say much more than that at the moment because I can't. Be excited. Um, but but be excited, exactly, as, um, as someone whose name I forget once said uh, cryptically. But that's all we've got time for on this episode. So my thanks to Paul, who you can follow on Twitter, at pants. Thanks, Paul. Woohoo! And Clive, who you can and should and probably are already following on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thank you very much. I've been your host on this occasion, Tim Stillman. We will definitely have Elliot back for the next one because I'm probably not around for the next podcast. Uh, In Switzerland, covering the Arsenal women's team as they hopefully seal top spot in their Champions League group um, away at FC Zurich. But until then, we will speak to you after, well, there probably won't be a game. So let's just say Arsenal probably, I think they'll play an internal friendly this week to get Saka and Martinelli some minutes. West Ham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arsenal 10, West Ham. Nil, or whoever, whichever jobbers come to London Colney for a 10-nil thrashing on Wednesday. But until then, thanks very much, and
0: ciao.